This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, a new study by the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco shows that nearly a third of cigarettes sold. It seems every time we have uh, uh, Gary on to talk about this, it's because the stats have gone up again. Uh, A study by the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco shows that nearly a third of cigarettes sold in Ontario are purchased illegally. To talk more about this, uh, Gary Grant is with us, spokesperson for the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. He is with us yet again. Hello, Gary. How are you today? Hey, Scott. I'm great. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So obviously these stats just keep climbing, uh, uh, and you just uh, keep reporting them. Well, I'm not quite sure they're climbing, but they're certainly not going down. I mean, they're stubbornly high, and they're, they're stubbornly similar. And, uh, you know, we see a little bit of a, a flux across the, the province, northern Ontario, uh, but, you know, 50% or more of cigarettes uh, are, are illegal being purchased. Southern Ontario, GTA, a quarter of them, but it all averages out to about one in three across the province. Uh, every cigarette that's uh, purchased by an adult is illegal. And uh, we've talked about this many times, and, and, you know, you obviously advocate for this, uh, you know, on behalf of... Uh, on behalf of the National Coalition Against Contraband Tobacco. Right. Does the government listen at all? I mean, have they, do they acknowledge this? Because they seem unbelievably silent on this. Well, they do, they do seem silent in public. I, I do get some very, uh, you know, what I considered positive meetings with, with the members of the government. And I think some get it more than others. But uh, obviously, at uh, the, the levels of the highest decisions, there hasn't been enough... Uh, enough impact made. We uh, we can't uh, just criticize totally, though. The, last year, the uh, provincial government instituted a provincial contraband task force with the OPP, which I had the pleasure of meeting some of those officers a while ago, and and they're working very diligently in making this. Actually, they're making some good busts uh, in the area, particularly as it relates to organized crime. So, uh, you know, kudos to the government for that, but uh, what I still don't understand is that they just can't look across the imaginary border into Quebec and see how Quebec has reduced their contraband rates by 50% over uh, the last few years just by simple, uh, simply uh, providing all police officers with more enforcement powers and, and creating a program called Access to Back, which uh, takes the fine money from uh, convictions in the uh, contraband world and, and uh, funds further contraband investigations. And the proof is in the pudding there. They were the same as Ontario back uh, around 2010, and they've uh, 50% less now. So that's more money in the uh, uh, Treasury's pockets for the people of Quebec and less money in the pockets of organized crime. And, your guess is as good as mine as whether the provincial government in Ontario won't go that way. Uh, especially when governments are always in need of money. This is something that certainly pays for itself and reaps reward, no? Yeah, and it's not like it's a tax. It's not like it's hitting, uh, you know, uh, hardworking Canadians. It's uh, taking money out of the pockets of organized crime, uh, which is, uh, as a former police officer, it would warm the cockles of my heart to see organized crime take a hit and the taxpayers of Ontario get a gain. So you talked about and earlier gave credit to the government uh, for uh, work that it had done in this area. What have they done? How does that compare to what Quebec's doing? Well, they, you know, they've done, they've done incremental measures. I mean, they've licensed loose-leaf tobacco. They've uh, created the task force, the provincial task force. And I, as I said, I met the officers they're very dedicated, they're very keen to try and stamp out the contraband problem, but it's not a big task force, and it's a huge province. So what they didn't do was, you know, uh, create legislation which allows every police officer in the province to conduct, conduct and get involved fully in contraband investigations, nor did they put a mechanism in there to, to create a way to that have these investigations be self-funding with conviction money. So... They're really missing the boat uh, on doing that, and uh, you know they, you know they, uh, they talk about the, the, the deficit, and this is an easy way to to try and deal with it and deal a blow to organized crime. Uh, so why go as far as organizing a task force, but not putting the tools in the toolbox that Quebec has? Well, that's not the question for me. That's the question for uh, someone from the provincial government to answer. The people that are that are making the decisions. I'll be in London this week is, is making some 
uh, submissions to uh, a budget uh, subcommittee, I guess, uh, hearing uh, submissions from members of the public, like I've done every year for the last three or four, and I'll be speaking again on uh, Friday morning in London, Ontario, to suggest the same thing. Uh, members there probably from all the different parties will ask questions and we'll get to put our opinion forth once again this year. Is there anything to lead you to believe that we are uh, willing to move forward and, and do more? You, you again gave compliments to the Ontario government for starting the task force, uh, yet again not fully going uh, all the way that's needed to solve the problem. I, I, is there anything that makes them think that they're, they're moving in that direction or to, let you th- or to make you think that they're moving in that direction? To be honest, not really. Uh, I see them willing to move in the direction of incremental small steps, uh, but uh, due to the fact that I, very even, I would never even see them address the issue of Quebec, uh, Quebec's model, uh, even an explanation as why they don't think that is suitable for Ontario, uh, just leads me to believe that uh, they're just ignoring it and uh, not, not uh, studying it. Does Quebec uh, cracking down on this fuel the industry for Ontario? They're not going there. They'll come here. Well, there's a big enough market across. I, you know, I, I, I suspect that they're, they're trying to increase their market. I know they've tried to make a few inroads. A couple of Quebec companies, uh, cigarette manufacturing factories, tried to make inroads in Alberta, and they were rebuffed there. Uh, the, the Quebec are more likely to go towards the... Uh, the Maritimes, which has seen, uh, you know, a lot of big busts recently. Uh, but it's hard to say. It, you know, organized crime is pretty fluid, and the border is pretty. Uh, there's only an imaginary border there, and from everyone around the Cornwall and Montreal area that are involved in the trade, they can go either way. So what is the solution, Gary? How do you get uh, a handle on this? I mean, you're obviously out here... Uh, you know, and, and, and saying what you have to say and such, but obviously people still aren't getting the message if these numbers are still holding as steady as they are. What, what more can you do? Well, I just think that two things has to happen, and I think the government has to take a tougher step. The interdiction problem, the enforcement is an issue. That's one uh, way to, uh, you know, get public compliance and, and, and solve a problem. The other way is uh, public education, just like in traffic safety issues. There's enforcement and there's education. Nobody wore a seatbelt years ago. Uh, and then the government started to educate people on the dangers of not wearing it. Plus, they have tough laws to enforce it, and now it's a great compliance rate. I don't think the public's aware enough of the problem of contraband tobacco. I think the governments really should, both federal and provincial, should be conducting some very far-reaching uh, public awareness campaigns to let people know, to acknowledge the fact that if you're buying contraband tobacco, you're not just getting cheap cigarettes, you're funding organized crime, and you're opening up uh, your your children to have access to uh, tobacco at very uh, cheap rates, which will start them in a lifetime of smoking and breaking the law. I think that message has to be loud and clear, and I don't see enough uh, uh any really any government initiatives on either side on, on either level of government uh, making pe- people aware of that at the end of the day though gary uh, do you think people care about all of that as long as they get something cheaper i mean you know um, it all sounds good but you know how everybody's you know, paying too much for this paying too much for that taxed here taxed there um, I, I'm sure there's a lot out there that, that take pride in not having to pay that tax. Oh, I know there's a lot of smokers that they, all they care about is getting a cheap cigarette. Yeah. Uh, but remember that most Canadians don't smoke. I think, you know, it, if it's even 30% of Canadians that mm-hmm. smoke, I think that might be a high estimate on my part right now. And uh, there's a lot of parents out there and a lot of non-smokers that would like to see people not smoking. They certainly don't want to see their kids smoking, and they'd be aghast if they really knew that the people in their neighborhoods that are selling these contraband cigarettes are also dealing in guns and drugs and even some instances of human trafficking. I think if you know, it reached a tipping point where the people of Ontario knew exactly what was going on with this so-called victimless crime, they'd see that they're all victims and might demand action, and that's what... That's when politicians listen, when uh, there's a fear that the government, uh, the people are, are going to vote them out because they're not taking any action. 
Is uh, what do you think because smoking rates are as low as you said they were? I mean, you know, it's it's not like it was in the old days when most people smoke. Most yeah. as you most as you said, don't smoke anymore. Do you think that's one of the reasons why it's not on the radar, or you know, people aren't demanding government take more action? It's not their problem. They're not seeing it because they're not smoking. Well, if the people the people themselves don't realize it because they probably aren't aware of it. They're aware of all sorts of other problems that go on in the world, but there's not much notice except when I appear on a show like yours or or the odd article in the newspaper, but there's been no, uh, you know, uh, really steady, constant campaign from the people, from our government telling people don't do this, and it's not just the money, it's the fact you're supporting organized crime. And, uh, you know, w- w- without, you know, uh, the public awareness out there, a lot of people don't care. And the smokers certainly don't care. Uh, most smokers probably don't care where they're buying their cigarettes, but it's the people that don't smoke that are really going to have to be the agents of change here, I think. So what is what, what do you think the loss is to the Ontario government every year for uh, losses in tax revenue? Well, I haven't looked at this year's, uh, this year's numbers. I don't even know if they're in, but I do know that budget time is coming up. And I do know that in the past, uh, in the last few years, it's been about approaching federally and provincially the, the, the estimated losses of uh, taxes from to, uh, to- tobacco sales has been about $1.1 billion to the taxpayers of Ontario. And that's, that's uh, money that should be going into the uh, provincial and federal coffers to pay for legitimate taxpayer uh, <laughs> requirements, things like infrastructure, law enforcement, health. And the other things that, especially the things that the provincial government is to provide, as you said earlier, with the amount of money that uh, seems to have been bled out of our, our, uh, you know, our treasury from various reasons, uh, certainly that money is not pocket change. And you know, again, this is almost like toll roads. It's self-funding, is it not? So uh, again, it just seems odd that with the Quebec model that obviously is doing so well, sitting right next door. Uh, that's also generating revenue uh, to go on to further help the issue. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's I, correct. I mean, the, the, the funding, uh, there is some provincial funding in Quebec, uh, some of the funding, but a lot of the funding comes uh, from the fines that are uh, paid from convictions from the very people that are smuggling the contraband tobacco, and it's used to fund uh, further initiatives against the criminals. So you're right, it's self-funding, it's self-perpetuating, and it's been successful. So, Did it take long for Quebec to get this through? Did it take long for them to come up with this solution? Was it as difficult as, uh, when, you know, as difficult as the feat that you're seeming to have with Ontario? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, how, what process they went to, but I do know that it came out, I believe, in around 2009. I don't know how long they'd been talking about it beforehand and whether it was you know, a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of dithering like our government's done, but they did do it. And they, but there's a, you know, there's a, a success rate of many years now, and the proof's in the pudding and in the numbers. Uh, taxpayers uh, see money going to the provincial coffers. Taxpayers and citizens see money going out of the pockets of organized crime. So it's like a win-win thing, and it's almost like our folks have blinkers on. Is the task force that we have in place in Ontario doing basically the same thing that the that they're doing in Quebec? It's just theirs is larger. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the you know whatever types of task force they put together in Quebec, I'm not sure of, but I do know that every police officer in Quebec is is now empowered to conduct contraband investigations because it's pretty much an, an excise law. Uh, every police officer in the province and every police service in the province is empowered and encouraged to do contraband investigations. Ours has basically been in the hands of uh, uh, the small task force of nine people, uh, the RCMP and Revenue Ministry officers. So you've got most of your team, your team of police officers, on the bench in this game. Uh, they're not getting involved, so there's a lot more eyes and ears and people's things that can be done with more police officers. But, you know, they're just doing regular, uh, you know, investigations and police work. I do know our provincial task force team is focused more on the organized crime aspect of it. They're not looking at someone just, you know, buying a package of cigarettes right. from someone around the corner. But uh, it all leads to the same thing. Even the small purchases lead to the organized crime. So I give them kudos. I wish them well. I just wish they had more help.
Hmm. Uh, but you've obviously had these discussions with the province. Uh, what do they say when you bring up Quebec's model and, and say, look at that, it's perfect? They basically thank me for the information. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they're polite, Gary. Well, they're always polite. Yeah, I've never, never met a rude person yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you've been doing this for a long time, Gary. What are your thoughts? I mean, what, what, uh, where do you see this going? I mean, you know, we have these discussions every, every few months or so, um, but it just seems like there is not an appetite for this. I think the... It's hard to see that there's an appetite. It's sort of like people putting their heads in the sand and not acknowledging the problem that it is. And my big picture thing, my big picture solution is uh, three pronged really: uh, greater public awareness campaigns so that people really know what's going on in their communities; uh, tougher enforcement, increased enforcement along the Quebec model, and interdepartmental and intergovernmental discussions feds and the provinces and First Nations people talking together to try and bring a handle to this because it's criminality on all sides of the... Everywhere there's criminality in First Nations, there's criminality going on in the provinces. It affects everybody in Canada, and uh, I think it's the negotiations and discussions, the enforcement and the public awareness that has to reach a certain level of significance uh, that the average Canadian... uh, sits up and pays attention. Gary Grant has been with us, spokesperson for the National Coalition Against Contraband uh, Tobacco. Uh, Latest metrics out from the National uh, Coalition Against uh, Contraband Tobacco shows that nearly a third of cigarettes sold in Ontario purchased illegally. Gary, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you soon, I'm sure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The U.S. has departed from the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, the TT or sorry, TPP. Uh, what does this mean for Canada, and what about the rest of the countries involved with the deal? Uh, everyone figured that as soon as the U.S. pulled out that uh, that would pretty much be it. Is that the case? To talk more about all of this, Kurt Hubner is with us, Interim Director, uh, or sorry, uh, Global Political Economy Interim Director, Institute for European Studies at the University of British Columbia, and is with us now. Hello, Kurt. How are you today? I'm excellent. What about you? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for taking the time. We certainly do appreciate this. So is this deal dead without the United States' involvement? Yeah, I mean, at this moment, it looks like it, even though we hear uh, utterings from Australia, also from Japan, that they may try to revive it as either a TPP of 11 without the U.S., or this would be a, a big step uh, into another direction, or they even suggesting, discussing, to include China, a country that was uh, explicitly not part of TPP. Does it matter to the United States what the rest do with the TPP? Yeah, in, in a sense, in TPP, whatever you think about this uh, project, and uh, please uh, recall that it was not only Trump, it was also Hillary Clinton who made it pretty clear to the, during the campaign yep. that she would not sign off. So if TPP would have come, uh, it definitely would have created trade, how the trade effects would have been distributed between the 12 partners. We don't know exactly. There were a lot of uh, analysis out there. So without uh, TPP, uh, this means uh, the trade vol- volume will definitely not increase uh, in the Pacific economy. Uh, and now we have to see what is the plan of Trump, actually. I mean, turning down TPP is one thing. Will he go now for a revision of it? Will he go back on the negotiation table and think about uh, to bring other uh, U.S. interests on the table? Will he go uh, bilaterally, trying to make with a selected country, uh, number of countries uh, trade deals? We don't know yet. I mean, it's very easy to say No, not this deal, but we don't know exactly what will be a substitution, if at all. Why were both U.S. presidential candidates against this? I think so for for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, Trump, obviously, in contrast to his party, the Republican Party, was all in favor. 
there's a much more a kind of free trade party. So he's obviously, again, uh, all by himself in this regard, or let us say closer to the democratic uh, camp to, to some degree. He was against it because uh, TPP would definitely have brought together a group of very different kind of economies, low-wage economies. And the fear would have been that uh, the U.S., first of all, would further lose out against uh, in terms of price competitiveness against those low-wage economies, and also that U.S. companies would use TPP to further follow their previous strategy to build up global value chains. All this is changing not only due to TPP, also to the fact that uh, Trump, this is the, the other uh, component of his uh, take uh, yesterday, he also was signaling that he's willing to introduce so-called border tax adjustments, means taxes uh, that would definitely make imports much more uh, expensive and also would undermine this whole strategy of the business sector to outsource parts of production. So this is really a kind of a U page that will be opened. We don't know the details yet, but it's a U situation. Why didn't Canada have the same opinion of uh, both of these candidates? What's different for Canada? Why didn't they share the same concerns? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I think so. Uh, TPP, um, I mean, the current government, put it this way, uh, was not, uh, unlike with the CETA, the, the trade negotiations with Europe, was not at the very, very forefront and saying that we have to sign it off. They wanted to have a second look at it. Uh, they were much more careful in this regard. Uh, that's number one. Uh, so it started under the Harper government and the third, the third element is, and that's, I think that that's important, uh, we in Canada are in a situation, we are very much dependent on an open global economy. Right. So engaging in all kinds of trade agreements seems to be a right step. Fighting the right way to do this is a different kind of story. And uh, I think that some of the concerns, they're also raised by Trump, but only with a different kind of, let's say, spin. Uh, has to do with uh, this whole kind of um, uh, foreign direct investment agreements, regimes, who is able to, in terms of state uh, investor dispute mechanisms, who is actually making decisions whether uh, fairness is being recognized. Uh, then the rules of origin, very important for Canada, but think of the car industry. Uh, we have a lot of stuff going back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico and Canada in our cars. Uh, should they be able to, are, are we allowed to export them to to Asian uh, countries? Uh, there are a lot of complex questions included, mm. and this is the reason why the Canadian government, the new one, was taking a second look at it. Uh, how does bringing uh, China into this discussion change things? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this would be I mean, put it this way: uh, the end of uh, TPP, like other elements in terms of trade policy, the new Trump administration is suggesting, is actually opening up a huge opportunity, a window of opportunity for China. And uh, the Chinese president already at this at this uh, uh, famous uh, Davos meeting made it pretty clear: we are the new champion of an open global economy. I mean, I would put a lot of question marks behind it, but definitely, China is willing to make use of this opportunity. And uh, if chi if there would be a, number, a chance to include uh, China, I mean, think about China, Japan in one agreement. That's a big yeah. geopolitical and political question. Would that but, not put? Would that not harm the United States? Would that not put pressure sure. on them? I mean, this would harm the United States. So uh, I think so. What they were. I mean, they were anyway on, on a kind of a confrontation course with China. They made it pretty clear in, also in the way they selected and picked their trade uh, representatives. Um, think about uh, the most senior trade advisor who made all this kind of uh, very harsh uh, comments on China and published books and even did a, a video on all this. So there is a confrontation with China anyway coming along. And I think so uh, if uh, the, the end of TPP would also, to some degree, hurt the U.S. So it's a, it, the U.S. is becoming a much more inward-looking economy. That's at least uh, how it uh, seems to, 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 to turn out. And this is also uh, a bit disturbing because uh, so far in the last uh, close to 70 years, so to say, after World War II, the global economy very much uh, to the to the best or to the worst, they had to rely on the stabilization effects of the U.S. And it seems with this inward-looking attitude, this pillar may be gone. What all this means for the global economy, we'll have to see. So how is the world viewing the, U the United States' decision to pull out of this? 
Um, how, how does that how does that play out in the rest of the world? What are, how do they th- what, how do they feel about this? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. I mean, you know, if, if we take TPP in, in isolation, it's not a big uh, decision because this was to be expected. It was part of the campaign. As I mentioned, it has been part uh, also uh, supported by the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So that's not a big the, the big deal as such. It's only if we have to, if we add all those other elements. What does it mean uh, uh, when Trump is uh, also making the case to renegotiate NAFTA? And when it's a very transactional politician, he thinks about, and this is a the huge kind of the change in the whole setup of the global economy, uh, he thinks to, to be able to make individual deals with country X, Y, Z, one after the other. Yeah. So this goes against this kind of multilateralism that was so characteristic for the last 60, 70 years. And uh, we have to see how all those things work out. Uh, if there would be not only the end of TPP, if you would see at the same time a confrontation all levels with China, military, South uh, Sea, then uh, in terms of trade and foreign direct investment, if he is definitely introducing this kind of uh, border tax adjustment, if he re- renegotiates NAFTA, if he follows his course uh, anti-European Union, I mean, this all means a kind of uh, a, a, a turn, a, a dramatic turn in economic and in political terms. Hmm. Kurt Hubner has been with us, uh, Global Political Economy Interim Director, Institute for European Studies at the University of British Columbia. Fascinating times. Thank you for the time, Kurt. Much appreciated. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. President Trump signing orders to approve Keystone XL and Dakota Pipelines. Uh, What does this mean and how big of an about face is all of this? To talk more about all of it, Dan McTeague is with us, uh, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic. And, of course, you can find out more at GasBuddy.com, GasBuddy.com. Dan, how are you today? I'm fine, but probably not as fine as the uh, sheepdogs who you introed me with. Uh, (laughs) Western Canada is going to be a great day for them. A lot more people attending their concerts, uh, having a few more bucks in their pocket with this decision. That's my first question. How must they be uh, receiving this news? Oh, I think you can see a lot of people pumping their fists in the air. This was massive. It was embarrassing two years ago when uh, it was denied for no reason at all other than uh, what one would have to say is nothing short of uh, environmental correctness. Um, but that aside, uh, you know, TransCanada pipelines uh, had done uh, their due diligence. They had had everyone's support, everyone's approval. Uh, they went in so far as to change the direction in places where there was concerns about the aquifer. Those are legitimate questions uh, in Nebraska. Uh, but I think what this has done is uh, yet no, there's no doubt that this will be good news for uh, President Trump. Uh, he would now be able to go and say that 50% of all the iron and steel used in the pipelines to build this over the next three years will be come from, coming from a little place called Little Rock, Arkansas, better known as the home to Bill Clinton. So there's a little bit of irony here uh, mm. for him, I'm sure, politically. But for Canada, let's not forget, um, this will have an effect on driving up prices for commodities uh, like oil, but more importantly, like steel. Uh, it could also mean, uh, ironically, very good news for us right here in Hamilton uh, in, in many ways in which we probably never gave much thought to just a few minutes ago. Uh, are you surprised how quickly this changed? No, because I think the Prime Minister uh, Trudeau had indicated in his first conversation way back in early December that uh, he is we are likely to see this approval. But the approval isn't just uh, about 830,000 extra barrels uh, being potentially sent to the United States or further on to the Gulf Coast and out to international markets. It also comes on the heels of the uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline decision, which uh, will increase the output by another 800,000. It means 1.6 million barrels of extra Canadian crude will make its way to the world. Uh, that will do two things. Probably generate an extra 30 billion, that's with a B, in economic activity in Canada annually. Second of all, it will uh, likely see Canadian oil prices not be discounted, $14 a barrel. Scott, if everyone looks at West Texas Intermediate, we listen to the Business report here on 900 CHML, you'll hear, oh, uh, oil is trading for $53.5 uh, a barrel. Unfortunately, Canadian because oil, because it's stranded, is only getting about maybe 37 or $38 a barrel. So this will be good news as well. It will start to rectify the, uh, the deep discounts. Uh, that, too, will be good, not just for workers, not just for revenues for governments, but ultimately for things like our healthcare system, the ability to build our infrastructure. So 
you know, I'm, uh, I'm celebrating as an Eastern Canadian something that's happening in Western Canada because it's all good for the country. What is what exactly is Donald Trump doing today? Does this mean it's a slam dunk? How does this move forward from here, and, and even with timelines? Politically, I think it does mean he has signaled uh, the end of the uh, uh, war against uh, carbon dioxide. Um, I think he's also recognized that this, in very, very large measure, will put a lot of Americans, welders, builders, developers, uh, everyone from surveyors all the way down to those who will be maintaining uh, these pipelines, not just this one, of course, Dakota Access, which is far more controversial, uh, but I'll stick, uh, we'll stick with the Keystone XL because what it's going to do is provide something that American refiners have been really clamoring for. And this is, you're not going to believe, they want Canadian oil. I, as much as we want in some corners in this country, we tend to dumb down the things and be very negative about what we're producing. American refiners love the Canadian heavy oil. One, we import a lot of their shale oil to uh, use that as diluent to get the heavy oil down south of the border. But second of all, you can do a lot more with heavy oil than you can with uh, light, tight shale oil. It's the chemistry. It's uh, far more valuable to heavy oil that you can do a lot more with. And American refiners, whether it's on the U.S. Gulf Coast or the U.S. Midwest, have spent billions of dollars over the past several years uh, in the hopes that uh, some government at some point down the road will allow heavy Canadian oil to make its way down. It's surprised oil right now in, in throughout the, the central U.S. United, uh, United States, and it's uh, it's, it's actually going to be a, a very good thing, I think, for uh, for both countries symbiotically. I think Trump got that right. It's it's a win-win for both sides. So is this a slam dunk, Dan? Oh, yes. Uh, more than a slam dunk. Uh, the effect, I think, will be uh, a more positive economic outlook, not just in oil, but pretty much in other commodities. I think here in Hamilton, too, uh, we may want to consider the fact that uh, uh, we could see steel and other prices and commodities moving up as a result of this decision because it uh, falls on the, another more important decision, I think, with Trans Mountain. It's, uh, it's uh, not a slam dunk. It's, uh, it's actually something that will put a little bit more change in everyone's pocket. Uh, how does Trudeau feel about this? How does he balance uh, this sort of decision with protesters? Uh, this decision was taken a long time ago. Canada... Uh, made it very clear three years ago that it was in support of Keystone XL. I mean, there may be some issues here and there, um, but I think the the pendulum has swung in the in a different direction. We've found ways to say no to just about everything that's uh, that's important in this country until we realize the real devastating effect on our economies and on our bottom lines. So I think this is a fair balance. Um, those who are going to be upset with this can always take comfort in the fact that they're taxing the living, living daylights out of people with carbon taxes or cap and trade. You've got what you wanted. Now let the rest of the country flourish. We can have both. Uh, I'm not happy, obviously, with carbon taxes, but that's my opinion. The fact is, uh, this is a, a very important balancing act, but it does put uh, the interests of Canada, uh, you know, putting food on the table on Friday evenings uh, as, a, as a primary concern. And I think that's critical uh, because uh, those who've been pushing the environmental agenda have to recognize uh, that they have uh, really estranged themselves with people who have to pay and unfortunately cannot afford to pay those high prices for. Uh, things that uh, they demand. Where does this leave our environmental policy, cap and trade, things like that? Well, I think they're still in place. Um, they actually might, ironically, be reinforced. Uh, we, we we can do both. Perhaps uh, there is an argument that says, uh, you know, when you take Canadian oil and you synthesize it or you, you actually run it through uh, some of the processes involved with remediation, with looking after and good environmental stewardship, the two combined, I think... Uh, it makes it possible that you can, in fact, continue doing what you're doing and not gore or, or destroy the golden goose, as we have been doing in this country, with uh, one-sided arguments that's all environment uh, against uh, practical realities, that we can eventually get to that point, but we don't do it overnight. And we certainly don't do it by, you know, kicking the uh, supreme daylights out of the most important uh, um, uh, revenue generator that this country has. This is, you know, this should be seen as... We can do both. We can do both manageably, but we're going to do it in time. We're not going to do it overnight, and we're certainly not going to do it at the expense of hurting people uh, like uh, uh, Mrs. Catula up in uh, Buckhorn, Ontario, and a lot of other people mm. who've been badly affected by bad policies that were brought in at exactly the wrong time. How will this affect? Uh, th- this is obviously great news, as you mentioned, for the West and anybody in, in you know related to uh, to resources and such. What will this do? This announcement do to things like interest rates, the value of the dollar, the price of oil. Well, it'll take a while for the pipeline to be built, but there's now new um, impetus behind Canadian production of oil. So for the past three years, we've seen a drawback in 
investments in Canadian oil, uh, in Canadian oil exploration. Uh, while all this is happening, Scott, you and I talked about this last week. No one has noticed yet, but it's it's an important one. We're starting to see Canadian producers of shale uh, picking up steam. We're now producing half the amount of uh, rigs used to produce uh, light, tight oil out of the Bakken, for instance, which goes into Canada. Uh, and much of that is now being, uh, uh, sorry, is really evidence that the country itself is starting to see a massive turnaround in one of its most important critical industries. The spillover effect into other sectors of the economy from coast to coast, not just in Canada, uh, will, will certainly be felt uh, in the uh, in the medium term. For investments, uh, I think Canada is starting to look a little bit more, uh, as of today, looks a lot brighter and probably a place you want to think uh, very seriously about uh, giving a second guess to in the past. This is a very important shift, in my view, from environmental, uh, from a, a, sorry, an investment point of view. And from an environmental point of view, it's something that can be sustainable down the road. Dan McTeague has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, analyst with GasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I can hear the corks popping from here out west. <laughs> I'll have to copy of this end. Thanks. All right, take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, we have certainly talked a lot about electricity rates and our inability to pay them. And, of course, how this has affected our standard of living and how people just aren't as happy in Ontario as they once were, uh, considering uh, the uh, wind government has uh, overspent on green energy by about $37 billion, says the Auditor General. But of course, uh, there's been a lot of politicking going on lately, and uh, even to the extent that uh, I think Kathleen Wynne is trying to distract you from what's going on in your province by her even taking shots at Kevin O'Leary, which is odd why a liberal provincial premier would be concerned about the federal leadership of the conservative candidate. Uh, That being said, I'm sure it's all part of the shell game to keep your eye off the ball. At this point, though, she says or seems to think uh, where they might have a window of opportunity to help you with your electricity bill is in the delivery charge. To talk more about all of this, Tom Adams is with us, independent energy and environmental consultant, and he is with us now. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Hey, Scott. How are you doing? Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, we appreciate this. Uh, she's signaling delivery charges at where she may have some wiggle room. How much wiggle room does she have here? <laughs> this is just crazy talk now uh, uh, from, from Queen's Park. It, it, the, the reason she's picking on uh, uh, delivery charges, I think, is because she has uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, direct control uh, over delivery charges and through her control of the Ontario Energy Board and can really pull a lot of strings there. But, um, you know, you look big picture at the bleeding wounds in our power system, all the things that are really going haywire and causing a lot of trouble, uh, uh, the distribution component of the overall power bill is is the least of our problems. Um, uh, it is true that there are problems in in the distribution sector. Uh, customers of Hydro One um, uh, suffer with a utility that's got very poor productivity, very high costs, um, very high cost of labor. You know, a lot of uh, problems, but. The, the way to fix that is 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 not to uh, get more political intervention. We just really need to kind of buckle down uh, at, at the level of regulation and have the energy board do the job it's supposed to do in monitoring and, and keeping an eye on things to make sure money's not gone to waste. But it, it, that's not what seems to be going on. Uh, looks like she's going to um, uh, pull a lot of cash out of our left pocket uh, through cap and trade in order to shove it into the right pocket and, you know, try to claim that she's doing something great for us. So uh, why are the delivery charges so high if this is something she can control? Well, um, uh, uh, so Ontario's got over 60 distribution utilities. Um, uh, If you look at them um, over a long period of time, you know, over the last 10 years, what you see is that all but two of the uh, um, uh, distribution utilities have been able to keep their rate increases to um, around the um, uh, the rate of inflation. 
we've been doing pretty good. You know, meanwhile, the rest of your power bill has been going haywire, right? Just like crazy stuff. Um, there are two outliers, bad, bad, uh, bad operators in the distribution sector. Hydro One is one of them. Toronto Hydro is another. Um, kind of puts the lie to this notion that uh, size and size is the, is the solution. The bigger utilities tend to be the less efficient. Well, again, we seem to see a lot of consolidation going on there now. Is that good or bad? Well, I, I, I'm a fan of the consolidation. I, I think it's you know modest benefits um, uh, down the road for for uh, customers. There, there is potential for for um, uh, for consolidation to help. And uh, you know, I, I so I, I mean, I'm not poo-pooing the, the idea that, uh, that that size is a solution. It's but it, it is kind of, I think, worth noting um, uh, for anybody that's claiming that, uh, that, that, you know, consolidation is just some kind of automatic solution, that uh, the, the big, cons- big consolidators, the, the, the biggest utilities that are themselves um, uh, or have been involved in a lot of consolidation in recent years, that those two biggest ones before the arrival of the new the new utility in the Hamilton area, so Toronto Hydro and Hydro One, they they are really problematic. But the good news is that the the rest of the distribution utility sector has been doing a decent job. So why is she focusing on that as opposed to other things? Well, I, I, it's a symptom of, uh, you know, a political process down in Queen's Park that really just can't figure out what its priorities are. Um, uh, like, they, they really, they, I mean, there's panic all over the place down there, they, they, and they, they haven't got a clue. Um, uh, I mean, they, if they were really going to do something about uh, uh, power cost, they would be... Um, uh, addressing the problem of uh, contractors still building more uh, uh, unneeded generation at a time where Ontario has a gigantic surplus. Um, uh, you know, we're we're paying generators to go on holiday. Uh, um, we're paying them all over the place. We pay wind generators, uh, uh, gas fire generators up north. We're dumping uh, uh, power at Niagara. I mean, these are like the power surpluses should be top uh, a top priority in terms of of uh, uh, getting our cost of power under control. That's not happening. Uh, um, uh, the, the 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 government's kind of trying to change the channel. Uh, there, and part of the the conversation around distribution charges, you know, that's been driving the politics. You know, it's just not really a, a, a very serious conversation it, you, you hear these you know terrible apparently terrible stories of you know somebody that used hardly any power but they got a big distribution bill anyway well in a lot of cases those are cottagers you know people with recreational properties that are not uh, occupied full time they they're when they're not there um uh the the costs for metering and billing and having a service drop come into their property and all those emergency services to keep them, you know, plugged in if the power goes out. All that stuff continues on whether they're consuming power or not. So it, it's not a crime against humanity that uh, that customers pay uh, fixed monthly uh, connection charges to uh, in order to be able to be connected to network services, whether it's electricity, natural gas, sewer, water, all those things have fixed costs for them. Um, uh, but, you know, I mean, it, it, but the, the politicians at Queen's Park can't figure this stuff out at, at, at this stage. They just run out of ideas and they're just panicking. Is this, uh, by focusing on the delivery charge, is that a temporary fix? Oh, I, I, <laughs> Is it just robbing Peter to pay Paul? Like what's going on in the electricity? It's it's one shell game after another. So the 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 next shell game that we're gonna get. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. But this cap and trade thing um, uh, is going to be bringing you know the government's expecting to have billions of dollars of fresh uh, uh, tax revenue coming into government. 
they, to the extent that they've disclosed what they plan to do with uh, um, uh, this new flood of, of uh, tax revenue coming in, the biggest single item that they've identified for spending this cap-and-trade revenue, it's subsidies to electricity. Wow. So, so again, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what's happening here is everybody will tax, it will be taxed. So in order to bring down the electricity prices of those in rural Ontario that are paying through the nose. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, that, that seems to be one of the government's priorities. Um, uh, you know, they've told us that they're going to be using cap and trade revenue to subsidize electricity. Uh, now, so they say they're going to. They tell you that they're going to use cap and trade money to by subsidizing electricity. Is that lowering the prices? Is that what they mean? So our our rebates that we're getting on electricity is because we're paying a now a cap and trade tax. It's right in the uh, climate change action plan that the government released last year. I mean, it's outrageous, but that's that seems to be one of the main priorities for why they're doing cap and trade at this time. Is to bail them out of the electricity issue. Yeah, look, it, it, you know, this is a governmental form of check kiting. Uh, you know, the 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 person that gets in trouble with the credit card that that opens another credit card account so they can take a cash advance to cover their monthly minimum on the first credit card. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing with the power business. We're just kicking the problem down the road, um, uh, building up a lot of debt and new taxes, and it just it, like really crazy, crazy. Is there uh, obviously this is an issue for the wind government? This is something they're trying desperately to fix. This is trying something that they're desperately trying to cool off before uh, the next election. Has it ever dawned on her to just change the system as opposed to giving us our own money back? I mean, has that entered into it in any way? And I'm thinking the opportunity to do that would be when other provinces or even the country are all looking at the same or similar programs. Why aren't we coming up with a solution that, uh, that, that, that everybody has already tried and tested as opposed to keep going down roads that we know uh, obviously aren't beneficial? Well, in Ontario, unscrambling the mess that's been made out of our power system um, is going to take real serious brain power, right? like real sit-down kind of homework-style public policy. Um, uh, it, 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 there's going to have, you know, the, done properly, there's going to have to be proposals that get debated and vetted and, you know, appropriate, you know, appropriate expertise brought to bear and um, uh, the information laid on the table, some transparency, some due process around this. Um, but all that takes time and intellectual energy and, uh, you know, a, a commitment by government to, to actually solve problems. That's not the priority right now. The priority down there at Queen's Park is to paper over, band-aid, cover up, and just get us through the election in 2018. We've seen this historical pattern before. Uh, Ernie Eves pulled a stunt very similar to this um, in the run-up to the 2003 election uh, with a, a rate freeze. Dalton McGinty did it in 2010 in the run-up to the 2011 election with a, a, a ridiculous piece of garbage called the Ontario Clean Energy Benefit. Um, again, these are just, it, 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 like, they're just shell games, but that's the way politics, the, the politics of energy works in Ontario. How does the inauguration of Donald Trump change the discussion in Ontario? Uh, today, Trump just announces Keystone and, and Dakota is going to go through the pipelines. How does this change the discussion when it comes to uh, liberal policy or even cap and trade on, on a provincial or a federal level? Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that's a big picture question. One thing that, that uh, you know, I'm kind of hoping that the Donald Trump thing does to, you know, the way we think about our future here in Canada is to make us really appreciate more the benefits of, of, um, of free trade. Mm. Um, uh, we certainly need to maintain um, open borders in electricity uh, 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 transactions. That without it, uh, Ontario customers would be far worse off than we are today. Um, uh, of course, uh, um, Trump's uh, pro-fossil policies um, uh, 
are likely to uh, further decrease the uh, market value of power in some of our neighboring uh, um, uh, utility jurisdictions. That, I mean, that, um, of course, means that surplus power that we have now in Ontario is going to continue probably to, um, uh, unfortunately, sell for way less than it costs us to produce it. That That, that is a, a, you know, a problem, but, um, I mean, the, the solution for that is to reduce our, our excess generation in Ontario. Um, there's some sign that Queen's Park has some kind of slight inkling that they might do that. I mean, they've, they've pulled back their horns on a couple of programs um, uh, with kind of weird acronyms, LRP2, FIT5. But the, you know, the the the, the big picture on our, uh, our on our cap and trade thing and and putting a whole lot of extra fuel taxes on Canadians. Uh, gosh, you know, I mean, in terms of our competitive position relative to the U.S., you really have to scratch your head on that one. Will we hear anything from Premier Wynne in the form of relief until? Uh, the next election, will she just keep punting this down the road until she's in uh, eyesight of, of the uh, of the vote, and then we'll start throwing bonbons at us? Oh uh, well, no, I I think she's going to start with the bonbons early. Um, uh, she says she's going to start, you know start to, uh, trying to buy us off with her own money uh, uh, before the next uh, provincial budget. I believe her. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think she's, she's noticed that uh, her popularity is not so great and wants to do something about that. Uh, but, you know, just like the, 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 given the quality of the kind of proposals that we're hearing discussed about what she, you know, is claiming are solutions to our electricity problems, boy, we, we'd be a lot better off if, if uh, the, you know, Ms. Wynn and her energy advisors would just go on a long vacation and just stop bugging us. <laughs> but then what would we talk about, Tom? Well, I mean, we, what we talk about is how we're going to deal with, you know, the existing problems rather than the new problems that they're going to create. I, I just, you know, digging this hole deeper just seems so tedious. It really... Tom Adams has been with us, independent energy and environmental consultant. Kathleen Wynne signaling she may soon try to tackle uh, tackle the electricity issue by zeroing in on delivery charges. Uh, again, another Band-Aid solution to a uh, growing problem. Tom Adams, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. So good, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.